Friends, welcome to the Small Business Matters podcast. It's the only podcast that truly matters to small business. My name is Tim Fulton, founder, chief evangelist for Small Business Matters. I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm joined by Taylor Fulton, the director of marketing for Small Business Matters. Taylor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to be here as always. Yeah, happy new year. This is our first podcast of the new year. It is, indeed. It seems awkward to say that on the 2nd of February. It's like we skipped (laughs) skipped a month. We did. We took January off. Yeah. But uh, I can't think of a a more important topic than the one that we're going to be speaking today with our guest, Adam Shapiro. You know, I think a lot of small business owners, as they think about 2021, they're focusing, again, on, on sales, on revenue. I think that escaped a lot of small business owners last year with everything that was going on with the different crisis and, and, and just trying to stay in business, trying to sustain you know, what we had. I think a lot of small business owners weren't really thinking a lot strategically about sales. And, and that's where Adam, I think, really comes in handy. And that's how I think how he works with his clients. So I think today's topic is perfect for where a lot of our, our listeners are. So uh, let, me, let me introduce Adam here. Since 2004, Adam Shapiro, through his sales reform school, has been helping individuals, teams, companies improve their sales performance. Prior to starting his own practice, he held roles in sales, marketing, business development, companies like American Lawyer, Media, Harbinger Corporation, Air to Web, and Inovis. He's consulted on and implemented sales improvement programs for over 65 clients, and a number of those, uh, Taylor, were Vistage companies and Vistage members. Interesting, he got his Juris Doctor cum laude from the University of Georgia, so he started off in the, in the field of law and then uh, morphed his way into sales management. He also has a degree in history and a minor in philosophy from the University of Texas at Austin. That makes him a longhorn for our, our listeners. And I've got to know Adam through, he's a, a Vistage member currently and comes highly recommended. So I want to welcome Adam to the show. Well, thank you very much, Jim. You're welcome. So Adam, we always start the same way with each of our, our guests, and that is, what is it that you do that matters to small business? I prepare and professionalize sales teams. So that involves executives, executive management, and anyone involved in sales, marketing, and delivery, really everyone who's customer-facing, are they prepared and are they acting professional in a way that we can define and then roll out best practices? Okay. And to, to hit on that a little bit more, Adam, what is, what is prepare and professionalism? What, what does that mean? Sure. That's a, thank you, Taylor. The, um, <laughs> let's define professionalism first. Okay. So a, a professional salesperson is someone who has hit the bullseye between three ideas. One is he knows what he or she knows what his process is for going from first initiation through closing with, with an account, whether it's a B2C or B2B buyer. He knows what he's going to say. He or she knows what he's going to say and do within each step of that process. So pre- preparing, actually having that conversation, email, whatever it is, and then recapping afterwards what he's going to say within each step of that process. And then 30 marries up those two ideas of process and messaging with a set of disciplines that allows them to pull it off in a best practices manner. So that's our definition for professionalism, have professionalizing a sales team. Then the other part of it, you can have a great professional salesperson comes into your company and has no idea what it is you sell or why you sell it or how you're successful. 
So that's the prepare or the preparation part of it. So I'll often see executives struggling with their salespeople. I hired the most professional sales team ever that I could even imagine, and we're still failing. I thought, well, what have you done to prepare them for success? Well, what do you mean prepare them for success? They're professionals. They should be able to go out and sell it. I'm like, well, have you figured out what your, who your ideal client profile is? Have you figured out why your buyer, why people buy from you in the first place? Have you figured out what your differentiators are? Have you loaded them up with the conversation tools that you would set use if you were out in the field with them? And then they look at me and they have that little dog look where they look to the side and look up in the air and go, uh, I guess not. Like, well, how can you expect them to succeed if you haven't prepared them, no matter how professional they are? On the other side of it, you may have over-prepared them with all your use cases and all your business cases, but you haven't professionalized them yet because you haven't documented what they should be doing and saying with each step of, that, of their sales process. Excellent. Adam, that sounds like, as you spoke about preparation, that sounds like a lot of marketing stuff. I'm just curious, you know, there's, there's always this, this marriage between marketing and sales, no matter what size the company is. How, how do you speak to that? How important is that marriage that there, there's some ability to work together? And, and do you see that? And if not, why not? Yeah, you, you hit the bullseye. And I, I kind of understand why you're running a podcast called Small Business Matters. <laughs> Oftentimes, sales uh, executives, not just sales executives, executive management, along with their marketing team, where they've hired outside marketing people, have spent a lot of money. And it's good money. And it's, and it's correct spends on branding on marketing, on who we are as a company, on website development, all those sort of things. And then, they, and then they hire a sales team to go out and sell. But what they haven't done is taken all that branding work and all the differentiation work and filtered it down to a sales conversation. So marketing may put out a great four-page white paper on who we are and why we do it. Well, I can't take a four-page white paper and just start regurgitating it out to my market meaning the actual people that I'm talking to in a sales conversation. So what I do is I take that and I filter it down to sales conversations or I build process around it. I can name drop my clients, but a lot of them do this. They say, yeah, we, we hire these brand people and here's who we are, but still I never hear salespeople talking about it. And by the way, Tim, I know you've come across this where the companies you work with spend a lot of time and effort on their their values, on their their culture and things like that. And then if I were to say to them, well, how does that come out in your sales conversations with your prospects? They would look at me like, what do you mean? I'm saying, those are your differentiators. That's who you are. That's why people buy from you. Oh, okay. And then that's where I know that they're lacking in this preparation part of the prepare and professionalize sales teams. That's a really good point because I think a lot of folks, even just intuitively and in, in thinking about the subjects, you think about culture and internal organization and you think about sales, and they don't always marry up that way. So it's, it's a, an important point. And I want to come back to that. Actually, I have a lot of questions I want to come back to, but I want to take a step back first. Um, so you started uh, at the University of Texas, and then you got your uh, law degree at UGA, and now you're in sales. So that, of course, leads me to the question of, of how did you get to this point in your career? Uh, as your audience knows, this is an audio podcast, but we can see each other. So thank you for condensing... 35 years of my life down, down to a, a few sentences because I actually have gray and, and bald spots and stuff like that. A lot of, there's a lot of in between. 
I wanted to go west, so I went. I went away for college back when that was really easy to do, and I uh, had a fabulous time in, in Austin and loved every minute of being in Texas. Thought, you know, I'm a smart person. Smart people are doctors and lawyers. I'm not going to be a doctor, so I think I'll be a lawyer. Went to law school at University of Georgia. Did well. Got a high-paying job uh, here in Atlanta with a silk stocking law firm, and I just hated it. And it, it just wasn't for me. And for other people, they can do it, and I totally understand it. It wasn't my thing. I made my way into technology sales. It's a much longer story that, than you guys need to sit for. Did pretty well with it. At some point, I had implemented sales process, customer-centric selling, and even solution selling with two sales teams and a marketing team. Had done well with both of those. And um, in 2004, decided, you know what? I think I want my career going a different direction, and I started my own business. Um, implementing sales process with B2B technology companies. Mm -hmm. That's morphed into really any sort of B2B company is my ideal client profile who has technologies either heart of what they do or a differentiator. And I'm curious, the, going back to the law school and the legal skills, I'm more of the thinking than, than the law itself. Is there some connection between that and what you're doing today? Tim, people might think that we actually had this conversation before we actually had this conversation, because thank you for that question. I had a sales, um, I was a sales manager for a company uh, called Harbinger, and I had a sales rep who I'm still friends with. Her name is Dorinda, and she used to come to me with, and we'd work through opportunities, and she would say, what should we do? And of course, I'd go through different scenarios, and what do you think? And I'd coach her in a way that I thought was appropriate at the time, and and then She'd be a little frustrated because it wasn't what she thought she, what we should do. And she would go back to her desk. And then a couple of days later, she would come back and say, that darn law degree of yours, you can think around corners. <laughs> and I was like, well, thank you very much. I started blushing. And, and she, I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you can play out all these different logical sequence of what's going to happen if we do that or if they do that. And what you're hitting on, Tim, is right, is the, the thought process of a lawyer, being able to argue both sides very simply if a if you can't describe why a prospect can buy from you, why should they buy from you? The idea of putting yourself in their shoes, empathy is something that, while empathy might not be something associated totally with the law profession, the thought process of, of knowing what they're going through correlates well with both that and, and making my career in sales. So Adam, taking a step back to what you just said. So you were in sales, and then you were a sales manager. And I think a lot of our, our listeners, especially those that are CEOs, either intentionally or unintentionally wear the sales manager hat. And so I'm, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to uh, what, that, what that hat looks like, feels like, and, and how it's different than actually being a sales executive or a sales rep. Tim mentioned that I've, I've worked with a lot of Vistage companies. I'm, I'm a member of Vistage. One of the things that um, my original chair, Larry Hart, uh, brought to us uh, is the work of Elliot Jacks. And uh, Elliot, one of the things that I got from Elliot Jacks, among other things, was this idea that you have a base level of workers, and I'm probably going to bastardize it, so forgive me on this. The base level of workers, that's level one. You have the managers who manage those, level, those workers. Then you have on level three, the people who put together the processes and then roll, the, roll out those processes to the managers who then instruct or together manage that level one. And then you have level four, which starts getting into executive management and then on up. Tim, I hope I got that right. Mm -hmm. What I have found is that the, that level three is missing in most companies. 
and especially in small businesses like the Vistage companies or small businesses that you probably coached, uh, you guys co- coached Tim and uh, Taylor, to the point where you're a salesperson, you've been doing well, executives promote you into management, which is can be a good thing if you have those skills. But now it's like, well, now what do I do? And you just start telling your salespeople, well, do what I did. And you start getting that rock fight because that's not me. I can't be you. What should I do? I don't get it. Well, no one is told that now sales manager what the or that he hasn't figured out how to document those processes to roll it out. And I call this getting um, mommy ears or daddy ears. And I, I've written a blog post about this. You ever been in a car when maybe when Taylor was younger and he's carrying on in the back seat and Tim's like, be quiet, be quiet, do it this way, do it that way, do this, do that. And he doesn't hear anything because he's got daddy ears on. Because it's like, that's your way. That's not my way of behaving. So if we take those off and, and I help a manager realize, okay, let's come up with an objective third-party process that if we can both agree that's the best practice, the, the salesperson and the sales manager, they can both agree that this is how to move forward. So the gap really from salesperson to sales management is knowing that you've got to lay down your process and your know-how in a way that the person you're met, that's on your team will understand is a best practice, not just Tim's practice. So Adam, I want to I wanna go back to 2020 for a moment. So we go into the new year. It's January and February. Companies have got their sales plans. They've got their sales people. People aren't getting on. They're getting on planes. They're traveling to see prospects and customers. Everything is as it should be. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're in a crisis. What did you see happen starting in March in terms of sales management? How did companies handle this? Maybe how well did they handle it? What changed? What did you see last year from your perspective? Those that had already started to embrace technology, CRM, Zoom, scheduling tools, did really well right away. Whether it was just recovering or solidifying their base of customers so they didn't lose customers or actually continuing to grow their business. If you had already done those sort of things, you were ahead of the game. Those that said, "Uh Oh, my people have no idea how to get on Microsoft teams with an outside person. What am I going to do? They started losing customers. They were behind. And your question reminded me of something I watched recently Simon Sinek's Infinite Game presentations, and he's got this book out now. I've, 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 I've got it on my list to read, but I watched his hour and a half YouTube, and then Vistage put out something about it. So, uh, Sam Reese asked him the same question, similar question. So what went wrong? What's going on? What's changed because of the pandemic? And Sinek brings up a point that, that I've, I've been making also. It's like we're, we're both kind of scratching our heads like nothing. It's just gotten more intense. So if you already had the culture and the processes and a professionalized team doing it the right way, they easily transitioned to this online world. If you hadn't, now my phone starts ringing. Can you help me? Can you help me? Can you coach this person? What what are we doing wrong? What do we need to do? That sort of thing. That's very interesting. I know with the clients that I work with and these crisis discriminated in a big way, you know, some companies were either put out of business or practically put out of business. And, and, and many had were on the opposite end. You know, they had record years last year, particularly starting with the third quarter. 
Um, so as following up on, on your response, so how did your work change last year? And, and now going into this year, what are you seeing? Yeah, so with my work, except for one, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. I got COVID the first week of October. Very mild case. I'm fine. I'm back. I'm doing, I'm, I'm every, it lasted about 36 hours. But of course, that made me feel bulletproof. Well, I had a client who said, we want you to do a live in-person workshop for us as the second phase of my three-step proven process. Okay. And I, we, I put in some requirements, 1,500 square foot room. I'm, I'm not going to be wearing a mask because I got to be talking to people and it just would be too hard, but I'll be at least six feet away from everyone. And then masks and stuff like that and spread out. Except for that client, all of my workshops have gone virtual. All of my coaching engagements and my coaching retainer clients, we've gone virtual. And I insist on it being over Zoom instead of just being on a phone call. And here's the reason I have found, and this is true for myself as well, I'm probably, I'm not diagnosed as ADHD, but I probably have some of that. When someone can see me, I'm not going to go reach for my phone and start seeing what's going on while they're talking. But if it's on the phone only, they may do that. So it was a bit, and so I insisted on that. I also started encouraging every interaction to be on video as a default. And if they say, well, I'm not really feeling up to it or I'll be, I'll be mobile or something like that. Let's just have a phone call. That's fine. But, and this is what I taught my, my, I coached my clients as well is let's have the default to be a meeting request that includes the video link and that you say, let's do a video call for every interaction with your prospects, your customers, your clients, whoever it is. So my coaching sessions became all virtual. I had already embraced Zoom beforehand before all this hit, now even more so. I learned how to do room, break up into breakout rooms and things like that. And it's been fine. It's been fine. I think sales is a lot about relationships. And you know, a lot of good sales reps, that, that's their differentiator between other reps is they can know how to make relationships and connect. And so going back to the, the preparedness and professionalism, how do you take somebody like that and, and say, okay, I want you to do just what you're doing, but just do it online. And, and I know for me, it would feel very different. So I'm a Taylor, I'm a devotee of the uh, challenger sale. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have, uh, are familiar with it or read it. Um, but the processes that, it, that the challenger seller goes through compared to the relationship seller or the lone wolf, things like that, is, um, is different enough to make, to make a difference. Well, the relationship sellers were exposed back in, in March, in April. Mm-hmm. Sales management and executive management always wondered, why is the relationship seller's performance always up and down? And why is it hard for them to bring in new clients and things like that? And the exposure was that they weren't doing anything to teach their clients anything. Mm-hmm. They were just being the glad hander. Now, the relationship seller still does well, especially with account management, because there's nothing they want to, they want to do. They don't want to do anything that's going to upset the relationship. So they get things done. They answer questions. But too often, that can be helped with customer support or, or customer success or something like that. So, so it is hard. So we're finding that most of those relationship sellers are older reps who didn't embrace technology before the pandemic. And executive management is starting to get wise to them. 
that, that, that's been my experience, at least. I want to shift gears. One of the biggest challenges I find with a lot of my small business uh, owners is, is hiring salespeople. And one, they're, it's, they, they dread it. They dread it worse than almost anything else in life, of the idea of having to hire a salesperson. And maybe it's a fear of, of failure, fear of making a mistake. What tips, what guidance uh, would you share with us in terms of best practices in hiring salespeople? I'm a uh, big proponent of assessments, not as a way to necessarily weed out candidates, but to know what you have. So it's okay to have different types of personalities and different types of people on your sales team. Just know who they are so that you can, back to the original theme of prepare them, prepare and professionalize them, so you know how to coach and manage them. The other thing is, and I um, I wrote a blog post about this as, this as well, is um, I get asked this all the time. So can you meet with someone and tell me if you think they could sell? And I'm like, well, here's some things to think about. Does, does this person, either through the assessments or through your own personal experience with them, have the intelligence, enough intelligence for what you sell? Can they articulate it in a way where they come off as confident? Do they um, have a personality where failure is not going to stop them? It's not going to be their saboteur. In other words, can they have someone, if they make 15 phone calls and send out 35 emails and then linked into six different people, try to build a relationship, like Taylor said, and only five react to them in a given week, is that going to make them just want to quit? So if that's the case, probably not good for a career in sales. Are they fearless? Are they okay with calling the Tim Fultons of the world to try to create interest in what it is they had to sell? And then... Uh, do they have enough comp of a competitive spirit? Now, again, back to what we were talking about before with Simon Sinek, this doesn't mean that they just want to crush their competition, but do they just want to succeed? Do they, do they have, are they competitive enough even with themselves to where they don't want to just be going along to getting along? They want to actually uh, close deals, be upset when they don't close deals and move on to the next one and close the next one, get better at what they're doing, just like a true... Um, competitive athlete or, or something like that. So I look at those sort of features in a, in a salesperson. And you can look at my website and see the can, uh, can she sell blog post or lesson on that. That's a great list, uh, Taylor, for our, for our listeners. It's looking, we're looking for intelligence. We're looking for resilience. We're looking for someone who's fearless and, and has, a, has a competitive spirit. That's a, that's a great list. By the way, Tim, I'm sorry to interrupt. Competitive doesn't mean they're not collaborative. Mm -hmm. So Thank too you. often, by the way, and this is true of the challenger sale too. One of the key tenets is teach, tailor, and take control. That take control doesn't mean you'd be a jerk about it. It just means that you're a take control type of person, but not to obnoxious level. The same thing with the competitiveness, not to the point where you annoy people, but just where you want to succeed. Part of that succeeding is does she want to work with others to succeed? Listeners, it is the Small Business Matters podcast. It's the only podcast that truly matters to small business. Our guest today is Adam Shapiro. Adam is the, the founder, the leader, the CEO of the Sales Reform School. Uh, Taylor, I'll turn it over to you for the next question. Adam, again, looking now, we talked about 2020 and some of the challenges um, the pandemic has, has forced upon small businesses and, and sales in general. Now looking at 2021, we've gone into the new year. Companies are hopefully a little bit 
reinvigorated, excited about the prospects of bouncing back. Um, what has changed? And maybe not what has changed, but, but what is successful companies doing now uh, that we are accustomed to this, this kind of way of life? And I'm thinking more, again, B2B in, in your kind of space, but, but what are we doing today now that we have this little bit of experience under our belt and we're, we're trying to forge a new path? One of the things that, that the successful companies are doing or looking to do right now is, okay, how is everybody? It's almost like it's a snowstorm. And like now we're starting to come out of our houses. We want, we're thinking about coming out of our houses and we're peeking around the neighborhood. And how, how is everybody? And I, I'm, I still am wondering why companies don't have an active program to make sure that, that their nest egg, their best customers are being taken care of on a regular basis. So if you're not, if you're, if your listeners are not doing QBRs with their top five, 10 most important customers, they need to do that now. QBR quarterly business review. And I'm, I'm still amazed at how many don't do that. I'm sure, Tim, you've been saying this for years, right? Do a quarterly business review with your best customers and, and they just don't do it. They don't get around to it. It's not part of their process. And the reason it's not part of their process is they're not using the tools back to things like Zoom to get it on people's calendars take control of the sales cycle. Hey, you're one of our best customers. I want to make sure you are always in alignment with what we're up to and what's going on. Let's go ahead and put a touch base quarterly meeting on our calendars for January, April, July, and November. We can always move them, but at least it's there on a the calendar and we'll see it when we get to that week. Oh, I can do that? Of course you can. So the one thing that as we're coming out of this, as we're thinking about coming out of this, is scheduling these sort of quarterly business reviews. The other thing is get out your list of people you've been, you talked to the last three years who said, no, not now, but you're convinced never bought from somebody else, where if they did, it was three years ago. Get that list together and start ringing the doorbell. Mm-hmm metaphorically, of course, start calling them up, visiting them on LinkedIn, sending them emails, get back in touch with them. Even if it's just for 15 minutes, I want to see where you are with that problem you had when we last talked in 2018, 2019, 2020. Every sales rep has that list of ghosts, if you will, who where they lost to No Decision Inc. to go back to and figure out what's going on and can we, can we rekindle what that spark that we had one, two, three years ago. So Adam, I have two pet peeves. So I've, I've worked both in marketing and now product management and, and worked with sales executives of all different types, shapes, and sizes. And I have two pet peeves that I always come back to. And I'm, I'm curious if this is just me or if it's something that maybe as a uh, organization we've done wrong in the past. Uh, the first is that in my mind, the sales team has been solely responsible for bringing somebody to the table. And then they hand them off to marketing or product management or a subject matter expert that does a demonstration, that does a, a discovery. And the sales rep attends the meetings, they, they push the conversation along, but they're not the expert in the product. And they don't really, again, I'm being biased, but add a ton of value to the, the process. So I'm, I'm curious what you think about that and, and if that's right or, or if that's totally wrong. Have you been reading my blog? <laughs> maybe, maybe I have. <laughs> Literally, to use a phrase that the young people use, last week I wrote, be a great conductor. Hmm. What I meant, and I wrote down why, when I wrote why, 
even if you're not the expert, but you're bringing in subject matter experts, you're bringing in the implementers, you're bringing in executive management into your sales calls because we know that sales is a collaborative effort more so now than ever. You as a sales rep have got to be the great conductor. You've got to be involved. You can't be dreaming about your commission. You can't be asleep because you worked too hard the day before. You've got to be the great conductor. You've got to prepare your team, your orchestra, Mm-hmm. for the sales call they're about to do. You have to be on those conversations, be in those calls. You've got to be the one recapping it. You've got to be the one to tell Tim, hey, this is my client, not yours. You're an executive. You don't own clients. So don't cut me off at the knees and say you're going to take care of things. I will take care of things. If there are answers that need to be relayed for later on, it's not the subject matter expert, the sales engineer, the product manager who should chase those down, you should chase those down and be communicating with the client. I agree with you. It's a terrible pet peeve. Salespeople abdicate their role in the sales process. They should be a conductor. What was your second pet peeve? Well, it's, that? I think you positioned it well because a conductor is, is a leader and someone who is uh, orchestrating all the pieces behind the scenes. And um, again, I, I've, I've seen it done in, probably a similar way, but they're not conducting, they're, they're pushing rather, um, which again is, is what, what often gets on my nerves. The other one is, uh, is sales quotas. And I, I know that they're probably very important and maybe you can speak to that, but from both a, a marketing and a product management perspective, you know, a lot of times I feel like we're still halfway through a discovery or we haven't told them about X, Y, and Z. And the sales rep goes, okay, I'm trying to close this this month. What do we need to do? And there's a day or two left. Uh, so, so talk a little about that and, and how sales quotas fit into the equation. So I hear two questions in your, in your peeve. <laughs> That's well put. <laughs> like rank to me. <laughs> so, right. So I'm going to take the second one first. Okay. The second one is how do we keep salespeople from trying to push deals to close prematurely? So you'll never hear me. Although it's a great movie. I love Glengarry Glen Ross. It's one of my favorites. You will never hear me say, we're all about the ABCs of, of selling. Oh, always be closing. That's, that is the, one of the worst things people can think. It's why people hate sales management. It's why people hate salespeople when they, when, they go th- when they feel like they're always being closed. Closing is the last thing that happens as part of the buyer's evaluation process. And it's the salesperson not only is a great conductor, but needs to be a project manager in the second half of the sales cycle to where they're project managing the buyer's evaluation process along the schedule they've agreed to when the evaluation started. So if it gets to the end of the quarter and the sales manager is trying to force the sales executive to close a deal prematurely, then this is a, this is a dysfunctional sales team. They should have had either enough uh, opportunities in their pipeline where they're closing and they know when they're going to close or have an expectation when it's going to close based on each of the buyer's um, buying process and evaluation process. That's the first thing. The first question that you really asked about this peeve is all about sales quotas. Salespeople are are paid on base salary, usually base salary plus uh, commissions, some variable compensation. And in order to, for business modeling to take place, the CFO would be, is any CFO worth their salt knows you have to say, okay, well, how much are we going to spend on, on sales? 
Well, that includes both base plus variable comp. Well, how many deals are they going to close? And then, so you start going through that, those, those numbers and that um, business planning, which every good company does. The sales quota will, will and should drive behavior, but it shouldn't be the dominant force on why things close and when things close. So it's a necessary part of what we do in sales. We want to get paid more when we sell more, but the, wet, the tail shouldn't wag the dog. In other words, forcing closing on a certain artificial schedule is a dysfunctional way of looking at how to run a sales team. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? It does, and I think it's, it's well put. And for the record, it was a rant, but I've worked some, with some very good sales executives and sales teams that speak to very much what Adam has said here. Uh, and I've enjoyed the process, but too many times I've also worked with people that I'm not sure what they're doing or what their motives are. So thanks for indulging me. That's fine. Adam, I've got a quick question for you, and then I'm going to turn it over to Taylor for his, his rapid fire. Uh, I, I read in your bio, as successful as you are in, in training and, and working with salespeople, you have an alternative career, and, and that is as a clown. And I'd, I'd like for you to t- uh, explain to our guests how the clown work came about and what it is that you do. Tell us about being a clown. <laughs> You're putting on, I haven't done that in a while um, for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, so the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta has a, a distinguished clown, clown corps uh, for each uh, Christmas parade that we, in the beginning of December. And um Actually, my chair, Larry Hart, introduced me to the group. And it's a fabulous uh, group of guys who um, we put on clown outfits and march in the parade and do silly stuff to the crowd and raise a lot of money for Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Now, unfortunately, I haven't done it in a few years. Last year, we had a pandemic. The year before, I tore my Achilles a few months prior to that and had surgery. So I wasn't exactly going to be marching <laughs> in a uh, parade. I'll say this as a bigger picture item, not just for sales, but for small business matters and for people who are grinding now in their business, find something that makes you feel vulnerable that you can succeed at. I, I'm just like people I have, I try to put out a persona of who I am and things like that. And then Larry said, you should be a clown with us. I'm like, well, I could never be a clown. And you know what? I can be a clown. It's like, and then that makes you think, you know, there's other things that I could do that maybe weren't as open. I allowed myself to be open to in the past. So yeah, the, the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta clown, uh, Distinguished Clown Corps is something that I've been involved in in the past. I hope to get involved in again in 10 months forward. Um, and we're out of a pandemic and we can actually clown around uh, marching down Peachtree here in Atlanta. Thanks for bringing that up. Well, you're welcome, and kudos to you for for doing that. And what a great lesson for all of our listeners, the importance of of allowing yourself to be vulnerable, to be open to to doing something maybe radically different than your your persona may suggest. So that's a a great example. So, Taylor, we're we're at your favorite part of the show. It's the rapid-fire questions. Uh, Adam, Taylor's going to stump you. It's not going to work. You're, you're going to answer all these. I'm sure hit the ball out of the park, but Taylor, take your best shot. Okay. We'll start off with an easy one because you brought up movies a moment ago. What is your favorite movie that, uh, embodies the sales or the sales executive? Oh man, you guys are just teeing them up for me. <laughs> it's gotta be the dirty dozen. Uh, 
Do you remember that old, uh, well, Taylor, you're too young to, to yeah. know this movie. It's, a, it's an old movie in the 60s with, a, with an all-star cast of a ragtag group who goes out and, and kills Nazis, which is fantastic, right? The reason why it's my favorite for this podcast is I tell everyone starting out in business as a consultant, and then I also coach anyone who's in has a career in sales, you need to know your dirty dozen and make sure everybody in your network and your life knows what your dirty dozen is. And here's what I mean by that. Your dirty dozen are those crappy things that people deal with that you help solve. So salespeople not knowing what to do and say in a sales call, that's a dirty dozen for an executive. Adam can solve that. Mm-hmm. So Tim, you have your dirty dozen list of what you help small businesses with. Mm-hmm. And you've probably built your career by having other people out there know your dirty dozen. And when they're in conversations, something goes off their head and go, wait a second, that's a problem Tim can help with. So Dirty Dozen for me is one of my favorite movies. Back when we used to watch the Braves on the Superstation, whenever it was a rain out, the Dirty Dozen was a movie that would come on. So, so, that, so it's that, that's always stuck in my brain. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Okay, number two, we'll stay on the, the line of media. Favorite sales book that you would recommend to our audience? I can only list one. I'll give you a couple. I'm someone who reads things late. So when Seven Habits for Highly Successful People came out, it took me like 10 years. Okay, I'll pick it up. I'll read it. And I love it. And now I quote it. Same thing happened, recently, let's say, in the last couple of years with How to Win Friends and Influence People. Hmm. Incredibly cheesy title. Like, why would I, a professional, ever want to read that cheesy book? Finally, I read it maybe a year ago. It's amazing. And a lot of salespeople don't want to read. We've got this... Some people describe us as, 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 as uh, unintelligent. That's why we got into sales. It's an easy read. It's little vignettes and it's fantastic. And you can get things out of it. It'll remind you, hey, yeah, be interested, not interesting. And that's Dale Carnegie. So that's, that's very high on my list right now on books to read. The book that launched me into my career, in, at my current career, I should say, as a consultant and having a practice helping companies improved sales performance was customer centric selling by Michael Bosworth it's getting it's dated of course. Um, but it's fantastic. No, oh, I like it. I like that you had uh, a lot of old school books in there because it seems like now in the, the days of self publishing, there's so many, so many to choose from. So are- I, I do offer a bibliography at the end of all my workshops. So I'll, I'll <laughs> over spending two days with me in a workshop. I'll spat out all these things. I'll, I'll, 100% tell people I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Here's the books that I get that I, that I got all these from and give them a bibliography on these things. That's awesome. Okay. Number three, um, what is one, uh, sales tool app or piece of software that gets the best bang for your buck? Top of mind right now is Calendly. Okay. I've just started using Calendly actually. I can't even tell you if I'm on the free version or if I'm paying for it. I, I don't even remember. But it's so awesome. And I resisted it. I was like, isn't it obnoxious for me to send my Calendly to Tim and expect him to look at my website on my Calendly and figure out when he wants to meet with me? I'm the one that asking time with him. No, it's great. You stop doing all this back and forth on, well, can you meet at this date? Well, can you meet at that date? And so forth. They just pick a time if it's coordinated right with your calendar. The other thing is it helps you control your sales cycle. Again, back to that teach, tailor, and take control of, this, of the challenger sale. Hey, when can you meet? Well, I don't know. Call me next week. Well, how about this? I've got this tool called Calendly. 
we're going to need an hour to discuss this next thing in our in our process of working together. I'm going to send that to you. Just pick an hour and we'll have it scheduled. It'll send you my Zoom link and we'll be able to do our, our video call. Mm. Boom. I have my calendar starts filling up. Back to the question about the pandemic. I'm going to add a little more to this. You may have noticed on my LinkedIn, just about every Monday, I send out a note saying, anybody who wants 30 minutes, you, well, I'm giving it to you. So because we're all shut in here, we're not able to go and have those, those real life cups of coffee with people or beers with people. I said, schedule 30 minutes. I don't care who you are. I'll give you 30 minutes. We can talk about anything. If it's in the morning, we'll have coffee together. And if the afternoon, our favorite beverage, whatever you want. I've gotten new business off that. It was not my intention. I'm someone who says, one of my metrics is how many coffee meetings I have. Well, I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I've had calls with water treatment managers in Saudi Arabia. Fascinating stuff. You know where I got that from, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Calendly is my tool that I would recommend. Good one. Yeah. Last one. We'll get you head out of here on this, Adam. So you went to the University of Texas and then you went to the University of Georgia. Which college town are you going with, Austin or Athens? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give a bias based on personal experience that by no means should be measured as an objective answer. Okay. I had my four-year undergrad in, in Austin and absolutely loved every day of it. But I was in law school at the University of Georgia, which meant for the first year especially, I, I barely saw the city because I was studying so damn much. Uh-huh. So... Um, that's why I would give the give the nod to Austin. I will say that the li- the lifestyle and the vibe in Athens uh, fits me as far as like if I were if you said you have to pick another place to live for retirement or something like that, that would be cool. Fantastic. Well, yep. I'm going to hedge on that one. Sorry. That's okay. Both are top notch, so you can't really go wrong. Yeah. Adam, I can't believe how fast our our time has gone today. We're so appreciative of uh, being with us. I know some of our listeners will want to reach out to you to follow up. What's the easiest, best way for someone to contact you? I have one phone number, 404-798-8397. You can find me on LinkedIn, Adam Shapiro, Sales Reform School, and of course, salesreformschool.com, all those places. Perfect. Taylor, you can see I've got just a, a page of notes here. Adam talked about the importance of professionalism and preparation under professionalism, we had process, we had messaging and, and discipline. He gave us some great ideas around hiring, looking for intelligence, resilience, fearless, competitive, and collaborative. Also love the idea of the, the quarterly business reviews, just making it a habit. Get with your best customers once a quarter. And then the idea after the, the crazier we had list year, go back to your, your list from three years ago. Who were you talking to three years ago? Who do you need to follow up with? Just uh, and and uh, I love the idea that he shared with you about salespeople are great conductors. It's like you know, get in front of the orchestra and making sure everyone is on the same note and taking charge. Love that idea. So, uh, Adam, thank you for being with us today. This is was great takeaways for our, for our listeners. Um, I hope maybe you'll be back with us again. Oh, absolutely, Tim. Was, Tim and Taylor, this is thoroughly enjoyable. So a couple of quick announcements, Taylor, for our listeners that are not yet subscribers of the Small Business Newsletter, want to encourage you to do that. It goes out once a month. Taylor, you know I've, I've got a new book out. You've seen evidence of that around the office here. I want to encourage any of our listeners that have not had a chance to pick up on Amazon the meeting. I want to encourage you to do that. 
Uh, Taylor, we launched the uh, the boot camp last week, our Small Business Matters boot camp. Very pleased to have that uh, get started. And of course, our mastermind groups, two mastermind groups, Small Business Matters. Uh, any of our listeners that might have an interest in that would, would love to talk to you. So I want to encourage our listeners to rate, review, and subscribe to this, the Small Business Matters podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It is the only podcast that truly matters to small business. May each of you continue to pursue all that matters. Mm-hmm.